Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Well, hello again. Welcome to the podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I have been telling my abuse story and my life story up to this point. This week, I'm starting the journey when I met my now ex-husband, who was one of my abusers. If you have time, I recommend going back to previous episodes for some context of who I am. But if you don't have time, then today's episode and the rest of the episodes can stand alone by themselves. So how was your week? Uh, We had a better week than last week that I reported. (laughs) We did get the doctor appointments that we were waiting for, finally. Uh, We had a date night at our favorite place, Oregon Stop Pizza. Um, That's really cool to go to. The organist play on this restored Wurlitzer organ. It's really beautiful. The whole room has instruments all around it and like crazy sound effects to go with it. Bubbles and puppets and it's super fun. I usually request either Bach, Fugue in D minor or the Rocky theme. Brian usually pick something like Pink Floyd or uh, some 40s classic. Anyway, we uh, take advantage of the date nights that we can get. Uh, The temperature dropped down into the 80s here. Thank God. (laughs) I don't have to get up at 6 a.m. to do the yard work. I can actually sleep in until 8 o'clock on the weekends and it'd still be pretty pleasant outside to do some of my gardening and yard tasks. So I also recorded some new music this week for my album. Now that's in preparation for my one year anniversary of the podcast in November. I can't wait. So you'll get to hear the new music on that week's podcast. If you are on my mailing list, you will get to download the songs for free. So be sure to get on my mailing list by going to dswministries.org. Go to the bottom of any page to sign up. You'll get a free list of my hand-picked best resources for abuse survivors. And I always like to say that if you know me, you know that I don't send out a lot of emails. So... I'm not going to be flooding your inbox with a bunch of stuff. I would like to give a shout out for MJan1, who became a follower recently. Thank you so much for following the podcast. So let's get into the story. I've got a lot to cover. (laughs) I'll be talking about my dating, my ex-husband. Uh, But I want to do a brief summary of last week. If you were not here, I talked about being engaged to my Peruvian fellow in college 
he exhibited some abusive and controlling tendencies, calling me Faya, which is ugly, and Faka, which is really skinny. And we wound up giving in to our raging hormones one night. You know, even though we were in love and about to get married, I regretted that we had sex beforehand. And our engagement ended after realizing that our callings were not aligned. But the takeaway from that episode was, yes, we want to follow the Lord's plan for our lives. He knows what's best for us. We should wait till we get married. But I wanted to tell you, don't beat yourself up. Some of you have had the toxic purity culture shoved down your throats, and you were not given any grace or mercy if you had premarital sex, especially if you got pregnant. So I'm here to say that we are loved by God. He is not disappointed in you. You are not chip china or use duct tape or whatever stupid lines these church leaders would tell you. You are a child of God, even when we fall off the path that God has for us at the time. God can still do great things with your life if you let him. We can find forgiveness and mercy because he is the God of second chances. So remember that today, friends. So with that being said, I was on the rebound after breaking that engagement. I unknowingly walked right back into another abusive relationship, and this time it would last for 13 years. I was still very young and still naive, and I still did not see the red flags. Now, as I venture into this part of my journey, it's going to be challenging to summarize 13 years of abuse. It is hard to know what to include and what to leave out. <laughs> I have told my story many times, but never at the depth that I'm going to go into on this podcast. I will save some things for my private group, and I promise to avoid the graphic stuff as much as I can to keep it family friendly here. <laughs> Even up till now in the stories, I have had to leave a lot of stuff out because, you know, I want to keep it relevant to my abuse story, just give you enough information so that you have the context, you know a little bit about me. Now, if you're asking why I am sharing my story now, I will say that for many years, I was afraid of telling anybody my story. It is hard to be vulnerable and share your soul. I was afraid of being judged and afraid of getting sued. When I started to hear other survivors' stories on other podcasts, I realized that if they were brave enough to tell their story in public, then I could summon the courage to tell mine. I want to tell the lessons and the takeaways from my story to help others. It is not my goal to call out or expose my abusers. I do not have any contact with my ex-husband. 
He does not know where I live or where I work. He does not go on social media, as far as I can tell, anyway. I have been thinking about what I should call him. Referring to him as the ex is going to get tiring. I was going to use his middle name, but I didn't want people to mix him up with any of my family members' names. There's a lot of names I could call him, <laughs> but this is a family show. <laughs> Now, for purposes of the podcast, I will call him Danny. We're going to change people's names in this podcast to protect the innocent and the guilty. <laughs> I came up with that name, Danny, because people used to call him Danny DeVito. Well, he is an Italian. He's from Philadelphia originally. He is taller than Danny DeVito. I think Danny DeVito's under five feet tall. But um, my ex is 5'7". But he had the same attitude and mannerisms as Danny DeVito. People used to call him that all the time. Have you ever seen the movie Twins with Schwarzenegger and DeVito? Well, except for the philandering scenes, that pretty much nails his personality. He was also a dead ringer for Al Capone. I am not kidding. And he has a black overcoat and a fedora hat that he would wear when we were back visiting his family. Even when we went to Chicago, which was Al Capone's stomping grounds, as you may know, we went on a tour bus, <laughs> you know, the tour of the city, and they all started calling him Big Al when he got onto the bus. <laughs> Uh, he didn't really appreciate that nickname either, by the way. But I think we got free, we got free tickets because of his likeness. <laughs> Chicago's a neat town, by the way, if you've never been there. So I'd like to point out that even though I will be honest and transparent with you with what went on during our marriage, I don't wish him any ill harm. I don't hate him. I have forgiven him a long time ago, but I'm still not going to be silent about my story and the painful lessons that I learned. So now that we have set the scene, let's dive into the story. I went to my home church, Pastor Scott's, for fall break, and I always sang a solo during the services. After church, I was talking to Pastor Scott in the foyer. Danny, all of a sudden, butted into our conversation and asked to be introduced to me. Danny then said he liked my song that I sang and that I had a great voice. He said, you know, you should record an album with that voice. I was definitely flattered in those days. You had to get a record label or know someone at a studio to get an album recorded. You couldn't just go to the store and buy recording equipment like you can today. So he told me that he was a record producer and did sound for a bunch of local bands and some well-known bands. After Sunday school, he said something about going on a date. I think I kind of blew him off at first, not getting good chemistry from him. 
I told him that I was in college and I was only home for the weekend. Now, I had this car that I finally purchased a few months back, but the radiator leak and the brakes needed work. He said that he was an ASE certified master car technician, and he offered to look at my car. He said that it needs some serious repair. So he offered to come down to school and fix it for me. He also claimed to be a great cook, taught by his Italian mother, with a secret family recipe for spaghetti sauce. He offered to cook me dinner too, so I did need the car fixed and I loved Italian food, so I gave him my phone number to call me later that week. I was now living with my roommates, a married couple that I rented a room from, uh, working at the dry cleaners down the street. Danny was going to visit the following weekend and use my roommate's kitchen to cook. I wasn't really sure about him, to be honest, and probably shouldn't have accepted a date from him. But when sometimes you have a need and somebody offers to meet that need, you do let your guard down. I'm not saying that he wasn't charming or good looking, but I could tell right away that he had no self-confidence. He always put himself down and made himself a victim. We had a very good spaghetti dinner with my roommates in the living room. We were in the kitchen. Now I still use his family's recipe when I make spaghetti sauce. <laughs> Actually had to marry him before I could even get the recipe. Uh, now he fixed my car as well. So I guess I felt like I owed him a few dates. We didn't really do anything except give hugs, hello, and goodbye. I made sure of that. I did not want a repeat of what happened with John. <laughs> We talked on the phone during the week, which was a long distance, three hours away. Now, you young people don't understand that concept. It used to be that you had to pay by the minute for any phone calls outside of your local area. The bill was charged to the person who made the phone call. So he would call me. His phone bill was pretty high at 19 cents a minute. There was no texting or social media back in those days. We wrote letters. Yes, I'm dating myself. I am old. So you did not have big, long conversations unless you had money to pay those high bills. So as we were talking, I realized that he was very immature in the faith. He did make a decision for Christ at a neighbor's house when they had vacation Bible school, but he was really ignorant of the basic concepts of Christianity and the Bible. We had some strange conversations about doctrine. I should have realized that it wasn't a good match if I was further along in my spiritual journey than he was, because he was supposed to be leading me, according to the church. 
I decided that I had better make it really clear that I'm in Bible college and that I was only interested in marrying somebody or dating anybody who was going to be a pastor or a missionary. I don't have any proof of this, but but it seemed that once I told him that, he all of a sudden said that he felt called to be a preacher and was going to move down to the college and attend school with me in January. We had a few dates on the weekends with him coming down, and we sat on the couch together and talked. Thankfully, there was nothing more than a hug. He told me about how all of his previous girlfriends dumped him, and he thought that I was probably going to dump him too. Did I mention that he was insecure? He told me about losing his grandma Scorzy and that he was bipolar. His parents had put him on bipolar meds as a teenager, which were not very good in those days. But he was causing fights in the bars and the venues that he worked out with the bands. He said he turned into the Hulk when some thugs took his brother out back to beat him up. Danny wound up putting the thugs in the hospital. Now I mistakenly thought that he was just, I mistakenly thought that he just had an Italian temper, you know? Danny refused to take the bipolar meds, flushing them down the toilet because he said it made him feel like a zombie. I get that. Some of the old medications do. But the problem was what he said next. He said, he said that the Holy Spirit has cured him of bipolar. Now, back then, I didn't know any better. I certainly didn't know then what I know now about mental illness. And me being a pharmacy technician, I know quite a bit about drugs now. Now, my home church had a missions conference coming up, and Danny asked me if I was going to drive up for it. I told him that I couldn't because I had to work. I decided to get some time off work and surprise him. I had not met his family yet up to that point, so I asked my aunt if I could stay with her on my visit, not assuming that his family would permit me to stay at their home. They were a pretty old-fashioned Catholic family, and they definitely would have frowned upon any shenanigans. So I slyly got his address and showed up at his front door an hour before church started. I really surprised him. He had no idea I was coming. So I got to meet his mom and dad, Lori and Jack who were very nice and very glad to meet me. They had a lovely home in the suburbs. His brother and sister lived in other states going to school, so I did not meet them until much later. So during the missions conference, he told everyone that he was going to move down to the same school with me and that he was called to be a pastor. And we were taught not to question someone's calling. I guess that is true. I didn't know his heart. 
but it just seemed looking back that he did it so he could continue to date me. I got a glimpse of his mood swings and temper when he moved down to college. He rented a truck and his mom went with him to help. The truck broke down on the way down to the college and he called me up on a payphone really mad and he was yelling at his mother who didn't deserve to be yelled at. He was swearing at her and I told him, you know, you shouldn't be losing your temper at your mother or be swearing at her. It's not her fault. That's not how a Christian should treat his mom. Well, he got even more angry with me and told me, you know, Donna, your timing really sucks. I don't want you to quote Bible verses at me or tell me what to do. Well, he managed to get moved into his apartment. He enrolled in school and started the new semester with me. He was doing sound for the church slide presentations for missionaries, and producing musicians' albums. I will be talking more about that later. He also got a job at Tandy Corporation. You may recognize that name uh, as Radio Shack. So Tandy Corporation had a part of their business where you could take your broken equipment and you could get it fixed. So that's what he was doing because he was very good at electronics. When he was a kid, if you remember those, um, those erector set kits that you would get, you'd, you know, make a robot or something or make a, a truck or he would put the most difficult set together when he was nine years old. So he's very intelligent, almost a prodigy in a lot of things. But he said that his teachers didn't like him growing up and that he wouldn't amount to anything. I don't know, maybe that's why he never had any self-confidence. Now, all you teachers out there know how powerful your words are. Same with the parents. So anyway, starting school again was hard for him. He had already graduated from a state college and he didn't seem to like the teachers in Bible college or the heavy ministry load. He helped out in the bus ministry with me on Sharon's route. He would get mad that the people in the church used to ask him to fix things or work for the church for free. I don't blame him. You should get paid if you do something. Unless you volunteer that you are doing something at no charge. He was now a preacher boy and was expected to comply with the dress code, which was a suit and tie, and do the labs that I talked about in the last episode. Now, he erroneously thought that he should be preaching in the adult services instead of preaching to the kids or the nursing home ministry. He was too good for that. He didn't want to put the work in, but he wanted all the glory. Okay, that is a sign of a narcissist for those of you that didn't catch that. He really craved attention and validation. Maybe again, that was from, you know, grade school, but 
He came from a good, loving family. He's the middle child, but he was just as smart or even smarter than his siblings. As far as I know, he did not come from an abusive family. So we went to his parents' house on the weekends to visit when we could. I would get to meet the rest of the family before things got really serious. Let me set the scene for you what kind of family that he had. My father-in-law's father, Ponti, came over on the boat from Italy. He had $7 and a blanket and didn't speak English. He was 14 years old. He learned English and learned the trade of mattress making. Ponti then married Grandma Fanny. They had three boys. Two of them were twins, one of which was my father-in-law. Now, back in the 20s, Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants were hated in those days. Now, my mother-in-law's parents were born here, but great-grandparents came from Italy. Grandma Scorzi had nine children. They lived above their butcher shop with one bathroom and three bedrooms. Grandma was a five foot 11 terror who used to chase the mafia away with butcher knives when they came around asking for protection money. Having a butcher shop during the depression meant that you were wealthy. You had meat on the table. Grandmom used to give away meat to poor families. And she passed away before I ever even came into the family. All of my mother-in-law's brothers were all inventors. One brother invented and has a patent on the chicken cutlet that we know today. Another brother invented the creeper. That's the uh, skateboard thing that you slide under the car to work on it. Her other brother went into banking and was stinking rich. He paid for houses, cars, and health care in cash. All of the men in the family served in the military during World War II, all decorated veterans. Danny was very proud of his family heritage, and he should be. They were wonderful people. My mother and father-in-law were high school sweethearts raised in a strict Catholic family. They were very much in love and they set a great example as, as parents and marriage partners. My mother-in-law was like Donna Reed, a stay-at-home mom until the kids went to high school. My father-in-law, Jack, was an engineer. I would describe him as a cross between Ben Cartwright and Adam West. They had a stable, loving home with discipline, faith, and morals. Again, Danny was the middle child. He had an older brother and a younger sister, both very nice people, but nothing like Danny at all. Both siblings were accomplished in their own ways. They all had a good relationship, but I was told that Danny was the one that got spanked all the time for running off at Disneyland by himself. 
turning the lights off in the church during the services, <laughs> and other shenanigans. My sister-in-law didn't have to get spanked at all. All the dad would have to do is give her a certain look, you know. And then she would comply because she didn't want to disappoint her father. I honestly don't remember any stories about my brother-in-law. I was to meet the matriarch of the family next, which was his grandmom, Fanny, and also his first female cousins. This was a big deal meeting the grandmother. She was ahead of her time, let me tell you. Independent, she had a driver's license and drove a car. In her day, that was not very common. She had a job outside the home and practiced birth control. She had a set of twins, one of which was my father-in-law, as I mentioned, and their older brother. She really was a very sweet lady. I was learning how to sew at the time, and she used to work in a factory making coats. So I would show her all of the clothes that I was sewing, and she would critique me. I would come and visit her and come over for tea all the time. You will hear more about Grandmom later. Danny's first cousins, Darla and Marianne, were there at Grandmom's to meet me. And we hit it off right away. Darla was into crocheting and I asked her to teach me. I think I only learned three stitches. <laughs> Marianne, on the other hand, was into fashion and glamour. She was somebody that would take a curling iron on a camping trip and she played the flute beautifully. We would put on Christmas concerts together in her living room for fun. Both of the cousins were single and they were almost in their 30s. Now, Danny would make fun of them. In fact, everybody would make fun of them because they weren't married yet. And they thought it was because their father would chase away any of the boys that the girls would bring home. And they lived with their parents for a really long time. But they finally moved out one year and bought houses right next to each other. <laughs> Separate, yet together. I was going to meet the whole extended family during Grandmom's 80th surprise birthday party. Now, I'm a pretty outgoing person. I'm not an introvert. Kind of in the middle. But boy, that event was exhausting. Everyone was very nice and very welcoming to me. But I didn't come from an Italian family. You know, they're very huggy and loud and touchy-feely, asked a lot of personal questions. It was really smothering. If you have seen My Big Fat Greek Wedding, they fit that stereotype. They loved to dance, my mother and father-in-law especially. They were ballroom dancers, and so was dad's older brother, Luke, and his wife. My father-in-law's twin, Terry, died before I ever came into the family. He didn't take care of himself health-wise, unlike my father-in-law. And Uncle Terry died of a heart attack early in life. So I always point that example out that, you know, diet and exercise and lifestyle definitely can make a difference. Now, Uncle Mike was one of Grandmom's brothers. 
He never married because he was severely injured while fighting on Normandy Beach during World War II. He was always in and out of the hospital. He was probably the closest thing that I had to a grandfather. He bought the nieces and nephews books for school and money for their birthdays and graduations. I was really close with Uncle Mike. He lived in the Korean neighborhood in his late parents' house. The neighborhood loved him, but he was as colorblind to race as could be. You know what he used to tell me? He said, you know, I have seen too much racism and hate during the war. And grandmom had other siblings that lived close by, but I was not as close to them as I was to Uncle Mike. So Danny's brother, Jack Jr., I would describe as an Italian version of Frazier. <laughs> he had this preppy apartment. He was a really good dresser. The, the apartment was spotless and decorated in a minimalistic fashion. You know, the clean lines, kind of Copenhagen-like. He was an engineer, kind of like his dad. I always liked him, and he was kind to me. Danny's sister, Flora, was in the tech industry. She always had this big smile, uh, was into hiking and nature. Both siblings were laid back and easygoing, smart, funny. But comparing those two to Danny, you would think that my ex was adopted. He was different than his parents, too. His parents were loving, moralistic, hospitable people. Um, and dad was so good with finances. Growing up, um, they never had a new car. You know, they always had these clunker cars growing up. And dad didn't get a new car until he retired. I think he got, a, he got this Crown Victoria, a living room sofa on wheels. He was the kind of person that paid off the mortgage in five years because of his thrift. So there was discipline and logical consequences in the home. They had fun family vacations, going camping, going to amusement parks. All three of the kids went to college. So my ex had grown up in a good family. So at this point you're thinking, why why are you telling me about your in-laws? Who cares? I'm telling you about his family because he did not come from a broken home. He did not come from an abusive home. He did not come from a divorced family. I'm pointing out here that abusive people can come from good family. So for many years, I never understood that. And it's probably why I didn't see the red flags, because I saw his family. When you get married, you marry the family, right? And my ex doesn't believe me when I say I loved his family. You know, they had their idiosyncrasies for sure. They weren't perfect. But I came from a broken home with divorced parents. And my in-laws always thought that I was from the other side of the tracks. One of Danny's uncles, Uncle Fonzie, he was the rich one that could buy a house with cash. One day he called me a mongrel 
because I wasn't a full-blooded Italian. So you will hear a little more about my in-laws as we get to other parts of my story later on. So back to Danny and our dating relationship. I didn't have any problems sticking to my intention to wait until we got married to sleep together. We didn't even kiss till we were engaged. But the strange thing was that he was in a car accident once and he lost feeling temporarily in his legs for a while. The spinal fluid had separated or something. Now he made a deal with God that he wasn't going to have premarital sex anymore. The whacked out part of it was that he actually believed that God would make him a cripple if he did have sex before he got married. I didn't believe that at all, but, you know, whatever. But he would brag about how many girls he had been with and how experienced he was. He was pretty arrogant about it, actually. His brother would give him sex tips on his dates, you know. So even though he and I never had sex before we got married, he would say to me, I know your body better than you do. Excuse me? Uh, I wasn't a virgin, and I was pretty comfortable and knowledgeable about my own body. I just didn't go around bragging about it. And he was setting himself up by over-promising what he couldn't deliver. More about that later. But again, these are red flags for a narcissist. One big blow-up we had was right before our engagement. I think the day before, in fact. We went to his parents' house for the weekend of my birthday, and we were supposed to go to this fancy French restaurant for, for dinner for my birthday. So we were sitting in the family room talking, and, you know, at this point we'd been dating six months or so, and I told him something very personal. To be honest, I don't remember exactly what it was. I think I told him at that point I wasn't a virgin. Well, whatever it was, he got really mad. He started calling me names like slut and whore. And, well, good Christian girls don't do that. Blah, 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 blah. And then he proceeded to get up and leave the house and get in his car without me. He left me at his parents' house. And I was sitting there thinking, what is going on? What just happened here? I mean, he's not a virgin. What's the big deal? Well, after about an hour or so, he came back, and he mumbled something about, well, I guess that's okay. My sister isn't a virgin, and she's a good person. Yeah, it was pretty insulting, and I was pretty mad at him. Well, we went to the restaurant, and before dinner was served, he said, let's go take a walk out in the gardens. The restaurant had a lovely rose garden out back. Okay, so he was then saying how sorry he was for the fight last night and that it won't happen again. 
So for all those in the back, he said, it will never happen again. If anyone says that to you, that's usually a red flag. And then he proceeds to take out an engagement ring and proposes. Like a big dummy, I said yes. Those sparkly pretty things make you lose common sense or forget what happened the day before. We would be the first ones in his family to get married. In other words, we were the guinea pigs. His brother and sister had it much easier when they later got married. They were really excited about us getting married and welcomed me into the family. Then the wedding planning started. <laughs> you know, I don't think I was a bridezilla, but, you know, I wanted my wedding my way, just like every other bride. Now, my parents, who were in another state, they were in Arizona. They were like, let's do a beef and beer wedding in the fire hall. All of my cousins got married like that, or they were married in the church fellowship hall. My aunts and cousins would make thousands of tuna sandwiches and deviled eggs. <laughs> Am I the only one of the family that does that? Well, my mother-in-law was like, that's not good enough for my family. My son's not having a reception in a fire hall or the American Legion. Well, my parents were like, well, we can't afford our fancy reception hall. So here's what my in-laws did. They said, we will pay for the reception. And that was $15,000 for that reception. And you know, that was really kind. But when your in-laws are paying for the reception, then they had control over the guest list. Yeah. So they told me that I could only invite my first cousins in my immediate family. They, on the other hand, invited their dentist, their co-workers, my brother-in-law's friends, for crying out loud. I was like, well, that's not fair. I mean, I couldn't invite certain family members because they didn't fit their idea of a close family member. I offended quite a few of my family. Then there was a big to-do about the alcohol and the dancing at the reception. Of course, Pastor Scott was officiating our wedding. It was going to be at our home church. So the pastor made it very clear that there wasn't going to be any dancing or alcohol at the wedding reception or he would not have married us. I told him, well, my Italian in-laws are paying for it. Uh, Italians drink and Italians dance a lot. So I had to tell my mother-in-law the news and Danny's parents were really offended. His mom was like, who does he think we are, drunks? We're classy people. There won't be any bumping and grinding or twerking going on. I don't think they use the word twerking because I don't even think twerking even existed. <laughs> I said, well, we can elope if you're not going to respect our wishes. And Danny was mad at me for even caving in to the church. And he's like, don't give my parents a hard time. 
So his parents agreed not to have alcohol or dancing at the reception. They decided to have a party at their house after we left for our honeymoon with everything they wanted. Danny and I paid for the dress and the honeymoon, and we were getting married between semesters at school, so we could only take like maybe a long weekend off. And just so you know, girls, my dress was a cathedral length train, a sweetheart neckline, and big puffy sleeves. It was a magnificent dress, I'll have to say. And brides usually have a photo session with the photographer before the wedding day for portraits or cameos. And Danny, for some reason, was really against it, stating it was really vain for me to get bridal portraits. We never heard of such a thing. He wanted my smile to be from him on our wedding day. Well, I didn't understand that at all but he put his foot down. And again, now I'm looking back and that's part of the narcissistic personality that he had. He wasn't the bride and he wasn't getting all the attention. Oh, we have to talk about the birth control incident. That was an unforgettable memory. Danny said that he didn't want to have kids right away since we were in school and we were working and I was fine with that. So I went to the doctor and I got on the birth control pill. And the doctor said, okay, it takes one month for the pill to work and I would be ready by the time our wedding came. Great. Well, somehow Danny's mom found out that I was going on the pill. And she told Danny that the pill wouldn't be ready by the wedding. It wouldn't work in time. And that I would get pregnant. You better wear a condom. And of course, Danny was like, well, I don't like condoms. So he comes to me all upset and says that he doesn't want to have sex on the wedding night or the honeymoon now because the pill won't work and I don't want to get you pregnant. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait. Where did you get that information? He said, my mom. I said, calm down. I'm getting on the phone with your mother right now. So I get her on the phone and I said, I have a bone to pick with you. Did you tell Danny that the pill wouldn't work in time for the wedding? She said, yes. I said, did you get information from a medical doctor? And she said, no, one of my friends said so. So I said, well, thanks for getting your son upset for no reason at all. Now he doesn't want to have sex with me on my wedding night, and you need to stop butting your nose into my business. I got my information from a medical doctor. And I hung up the phone. Uh, yeah, I'd like to say that that was the last argument I had with my mother-in-law, but it wasn't. If you have a mother-in-law... <laughs> You've probably had some of the same kind of experiences with boundaries. But Danny was mad at me for putting his mother in her place, stating that I was being disrespectful. I said, she's giving out incorrect medical information. 
I've waited all this time to have sex and that's what we're going to do. So every bride usually gets a bridal shower. My in-laws surprised me with all the ladies on their side of the family. My family wasn't invited at all. So I was taken off guard with the surprise. The only ones that I had met before were the two cousins I mentioned, my future mother-in-law, and I think that was it. And I thought, oh no, I'm in a room with all these family members I barely know. <laughs> and I was just thinking, well, I know what wedding showers are for, and I was kind of nervous about what kind of embarrassing gifts they were going to give me. But I just sat there and I smiled and tried to have a good time, tried to be, you know, gracious. Thankfully, most of the gifts were, you know, bath towels and ironing boards and sheets. But it was my mother-in-law who gave me the negligee. Uh, it looked like a white slip, to be honest. It wasn't particularly sexy, um, but I remembered back that day, I was still a little embarrassed that she bought it for me. That it was maybe more appropriate for my own mother to buy something like that, but Speaking of my mother, my mom and my sister didn't like my fiance. By the way, he did the same thing that John, my Peruvian fiance, did with me, which was waiting on him hand and foot in front of my mother and tapping his glass. I mean, where do these guys get this crap from? My sister lived in France. And my mom told her about who Danny was and what he was like, but she had never met him. She sent me a letter asking me why I was marrying this guy. She thought it was just because of the hormones. Why don't I just sleep with him and get it over with? Why do you have to marry this jerk? Apparently word got around. <laughs> Well, she said that she was going to send me a blindfold for the wedding night. Well, that was, that was pretty insulting if you're looking back on that. But that was my family's way of trying to protect me. You know, red flags, red flags. We don't like him. There's something off about this guy. I didn't listen. Well, Danny found the letter and read it, which was not good. He was so angry about what she said that he told me I was not allowed to talk to her or see her anymore. He would not let me go to France to visit her for this reason. It would be seven years before I would see my sister again. So during our engagement, Danny was really stressed out and went zooming around in the car. Now he had quit smoking years ago, but um, he went and bought a pack of cigarettes and smoked a pack of cigarettes without telling me. Now, before the wedding, I stayed with a couple of friends, a married couple. The husband was Ron, who was one of the guys that went with us on the mission trip to Canada. I found out really fast that Ron was an abusive man. I was upstairs and he and his wife were downstairs. He was yelling at her and throwing stuff. I was really glad that I only stayed there for two days before the wedding. 
And let me mention the premarital counseling. Premarital counseling that we were required to go through was not adequate from what I remember. It did not prepare me for the life-changing event that was about to happen. I remember that Danny did not want to do the reading and exercises each week. That would be a pattern that would show up in the future. You know, I didn't hear anything about abuse. Just about, you know, the typical roles in marriage. I don't remember a whole lot, to be honest, from that counseling, except a few things. Danny was complaining that there were too many Bible verses being quoted at him. And the strange part I remember was the sex talk. Well, the counselors were a husband and wife team who were on staff with the church. They were very nice people, had a great marriage and wonderful kids. And all I remember about the wife, uh, Margaret, was her mentioning her and, and, and Dave's frequency and making time for each other. And Danny said he already knew about sex and didn't need any instruction. Danny strangely brought up that he didn't want to have sex during my period because it was forbidden in the Old Testament. What a bizarre thing to say. And that was all. You know, I think a lot of couples that go through premarital counseling, if at all, don't receive adequate preparation. And I think that's part of the problem of our broken marriages these days. So the red flags were very subtle. As I've been pointing them out here and there, but they were there. I did have an uneasy feeling that I wasn't sure about him. I did think about calling off the engagement, but then I thought, Oh, things will get better after the wedding. He's just stressed out. You know, I made excuses for his behavior. I did not recognize an abusive man because I thought abusers hit people. Abusers come from, you know, alcoholic families or people on the other side of the tracks or which now we know that is not the case. But his family paid $15,000 for this wedding. You know, everything was reserved. All these people were coming. You know, my name was on all the tea towels. And it is really difficult to bring everything to a screeching halt at the last minute. Probably seeing people being left at the altar. Everybody judges them, but there's a reason why they left the person at the altar. Maybe you're doing the person left behind a favor. Maybe the person who left really was dodging a bullet. So, you know, I didn't do that. I did not leave him at the altar, obviously, but I probably should have called off the engagement. Why did I still marry him? Sometimes I think I felt sorry for him or that I was attracted to the idea of marriage or, you know, I wanted to get a husband so I could be a missionary's wife. Maybe I wanted a fancy wedding deep down inside. Maybe I was enticed with the prospect of recording a music album. Maybe all of those things. So I gave you a lot to think about this week. Next week, we will get into the wedding 
and the tumultuous first year of our marriage. So I hope that you've learned some things today, some food for thought. Thanks so much for listening to my story. And I hope to see you next week on the podcast. So until then, God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.